0: Let's pray once more as we open the word together because we need God's help, don't we? Father, there are many words we could use to describe our need today, whether humorously saying we need, we're out of whack, we need more whack, or the, the great reality, though, that your word reveals to us and that we know in our heart of hearts is that we are in need of you. We are in need of your grace. We are in need of your mercy. We're in need of your steadfast love. We're in need of your forgiveness. We're in need of your patience. We're in need of your strength and wisdom and so many needs that we could list right now, but all of them are found in you. And how thankful we are that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and because of the great mercy with which you loved us, even when we were in that desperate and dead condition, You sent your son, and you rescued sinners like us. You are the one that the scriptures tell us make us alive together with Christ. You are the one that the scriptures reveal to us saves us by your grace, and it's not a result of our works or our best efforts to save self, but it's all of grace. And if you would have that kind of compassion upon us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, then we are confident that even on this day as redeemed ones, you have uh, great grace and mercy and compassion in store for us. So pour it out upon us right now, we pray. Give us eyes to see your truth as it is. Give us ears to hear your truth as it is. Give us hearts that are tender and obedient and receptive Oh, Lord God, this kind of sight and hearing and heartbeat must come from you. We you not have the capacity to manufacture it in ourselves? So come, Lord God, and help us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your only Son, our only Savior. Amen. Well, open your Bibles, please, to Jonah 3. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there from the seat rack in front of you and you're not sure where you could find Jonah, it's on page 775, 775, and it's one of the minor prophets getting toward the end of the Old Testament, so you could even find Matthew, uh, if that's an easy book for you to find the first book of the New Testament, and then start flipping backwards, you will probably hit Jonah in short order. So to this point, we have seen God hear the cries of desperate sailors and Heard God hear the desperate cry of a prophet who had been tossed into the sea, who came to the doors of death, but God had mercy upon him and saved him. And we're going to see God again coming to the rescue of an entire city that is in desperate shape and coming to the rescue of Jonah a second time. And I am mindful that God loves to rescue and often rescues people who aren't even looking to be rescued. I had had enough. I had suffered long at the hands of my sisters. I was completely misunderstood by my parents, underappreciated by my friends, and felt unknown as I'm sure I was, and insignificant to most of the world. And so at the tender age of eight, I decided I was going to run away. And so I found a little black athletic bag that my dad kept in the top of his closet and I gathered a few essential items that I thought would help any 8-year-old making his way independently into the world and I left my room went down the stairs through the little kitchen out the back door of the rental house that we lived in at that time and my sister Beth one of three sisters she's 4 years older than I was there in in that kitchen area and said where are you going And I responded, I'm running away. And she had the temerity to laugh in my face, which simply confirmed in my mind what I had already determined and justified in my heart. I was underappreciated and certainly not loved as I deserved to be loved. And so I was more determined than ever, misunderstood as I was, that I would leave. And I think she said as I went out the doors, you'll be back. And then she kind of followed me and stood in the doorway. And I went through the backyard and went to the chain link gate. uh, And it was padlocked. I suspected that. So without the key, I had to climb up the six foot fence. And I made it to the top and dropped that little satchel to the ground below me. And scurried down the backside of the fence and hit the ground. And glanced back at my sister who stood in the doorway. And she was shaking her head and smiling. And I felt like I was being mocked rather than rescued. It angered me that she could be so indifferent, Uh, and in my little eight-year-old world, I was suffering deeply and and just needed to move on, and so our house sat on uh, the side of an alleyway between two paved streets, and the street we lived on was Wilton Street, and the the street behind us uh, was at the end of that alleyway, and so I began walking down that alleyway, and it probably took all of 90 seconds or two minutes uh, to, to come to the end, and where that alley dumped out onto Robinson Street, and I remember standing there and kind of looking one way and looking the other, and then thinking to myself, where will I go, really? What will I do? And I promptly turned around and went home. And I I wish I could remember if my sister said anything to me. I know years later, I recounted the story. My parents had no clue of what had taken place, and probably my other two sisters were just as clueless and and careless about all of that. But even as an eight-year-old, I had wound this thing up into my head where I was misunderstood and mistreated and deserved a better life than what I had at that particular moment. I was angry. I was also full of self-righteousness and pride. It's the kind of thing that resides in all of us. It's the kind of thing we've already encountered in the life of Jonah. And it's amazing that even after the glorious, even miraculous uh, deliverance that chapter 2 revealed to us where God did not take this prophet's life, even though he would have been happy to die, that, that Jonah would be back in the same really ugly place that he is. But lest we are too hard on Jonah, I think all of us could probably tell a similar story of reaching a point of saying, I'm misunderstood, I'm justified in my particular attitudes. And as we'll see in just a little bit, for Jonah, that was an anger that spilled out against God as well as against the people that he was called to serve. You see, there's an underlying heart issue with Jonah as we return to this brief story. And God's great compassion, though it's being poured out upon sailors such as we've already seen, and though it's going to be poured out upon a large city of of idolatrous rebels, Jonah remains the central figure that you feel like God is more intent on rescuing him than any of us would have imagined. God is more intent on rescuing Jonah than even Jonah desires, And so we come to Jonah 3. Now, chapter 3 holds for us a remarkable story of of God's gracious work in Nineveh. So we're going to look first at God's grace as it's revealed to Nineveh, and then we're going to come into chapter 4 and see how God continues to reveal His grace to Jonah. Now, let let me begin reading here in verse 1, and I want you to see, first of all, some things about God's heart for this city. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Or if we were actually translating that in a little more literal sense, we could say, Nineveh was a great city to God. And then Jonah adds on this, so we could understand the physical breadth of the city, three, day, three days journey. But I want to pause and just make this note that the, the, one of the points being made here is that Nineveh was a city of significant concern to God himself, and it should not be insignificant to, to Jonah. So you begin to see the heart of God. His grace is, is visible in that he is very concerned for this great city. Let's move on. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. One of the shortest prophetic messages ever delivered. I've tried and tried. I could not boil a Sunday message down to the handful of words that God gave Jonah to preach. And even if I did, I'm not sure I would have faith that it would have an impact upon your hearts and mine right? I mean, can you imagine? This is the word that God has given Jonah, and here it is, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And amazingly, verse 5 says, the people of Nineveh believed God. So God, first of all, has great concern for this city, concern enough that he sends a prophet, and second of all, you see that his message to Nineveh is direct. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, hey, there's some good things in store if, if you and I could work out something, if I could be your God and you begin to worship me. No, he says, in, in no uncertain terms, 40 days and you will be overthrown. You will be destroyed. But obviously, something else is at work here because most people would not hear such a simple message and, and, and suddenly there'd be widespread response to it. One author writes, John, Jonah only had to start to go into the city with his message that first day. Remember, it's a three-day's journey from one side to the other. But on day number one, with those few words, something extraordinary happens. This author goes on to say, Jonah's words reached eager ears right away, and the Ninevites themselves repeated the message all over the city until it touched even the king. Look at the end of verse 5. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. So apparently he's had time to confer, consult with the other nobles. And they put together this decree. Things are happening at such a rapid pace. Nobody could fathom this kind of work of God. And here's the decree. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now, that little word turn that you see in verse 8 is a term that you will find used throughout the Old Testament that has specific reference to repentance. And when God uses that word turn, he is indicating not just a change of mind or even of heart, but actually of life. And the king is calling for this kind of radical change. May I just interject this, that genuine repentance toward God and toward our sin will always demonstrate itself, sometimes in radical expressions of sorrow, but always in a genuine change of life. That's why we don't measure a person's repentance simply in terms of what might be said. We wait to see what kind of life change there is. And if some of you are wrestling with sin this morning and saying, but but I do feel badly about it, I do feel sorrowful, we're we're all going to be happy for feeling badly and sorrowful, but the real question will be, are you going to make any necessary change? It's the mark of repentance. Repentance. We, we pause as we read this and we think to ourselves, as at least I have been this week, and I would, I, I would invite you to just meditate on how glorious it would be in such a staggering turn of events to see our whole nation brought to a place uh, like we are seeing Nineveh brought to in, in Jonah 3, where the national call goes out for every person to fast, for every person to put on garments, that signify a genuine mourning and sorrow over sin, where the call goes out from the White House to the rest of the nation saying, call out mightily to God and turn from our evil ways and from the violence in our hands. I mean, that would be magnificent. And we should pray to that end. But we don't have control over that today, do we? So the real question is, are we individually willing to live in this kind of humility and brokenness over our sins? And I'm sure that if you are honest before God right now, that you would, you would find him exposing sin in your heart that you may not yet have repented of, or you may not have actually taken seriously. And the question is, before you, you or I would point a finger toward Washington and say, well, if they would, we would, the, we don't need to wait for them. Are you actively turning from your evil ways, and are you actively calling out to this mighty God? Because you do not need to wait for an edict to come down from the highest political office in this land before you turn from your sinful pride or turn from your sinful prejudice or turn from your lust for control that manifests itself in your fits of anger or pouting ploys of manipulation or turn from your love affair with worldly entertainment or pornographic images Turn from the worldliness that drains the spiritual vigor from your soul. God's call is to turn. And look at verse 9. The question arises from this culture that has not had the benefit of being under God's teaching and instruction. And they ask, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see how seriously they are taking this? The king recognizes that if they continue on this path in their sin, they are on a collision course with a God in heaven who will minister justice in the form of destruction. But notice God's response for his mercy to Nineveh is stunning. Verse 10 says that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, he relented of the disaster. So God sees the visible signs of repentance, but deeper than that, he sees what's taking place in the heart, and he actually ceases. It's like he brings this this train of justice, those freight cars loaded with wrath and destruction for Nineveh. He just puts it all on, on hold, stops it, and he relents of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What a moment! Do you know the prophet Jeremiah recorded the words of God in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8? Listen to what the Lord says, not just to Nineveh, but to the nations of the earth. And this is his word for us today. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. There's the hope. We, we need to stop praying for a political resolution to what plagues America at this particular moment. We need to stop praying for political solutions between our nation and other nations of the earth that are at odds or governments that are, that are, that are bringing about great injustice, even persecuting. We need to pray for a heart change, the kind of gracious work that God did in Nineveh, because our God says, I will relent of the disaster if that nation turns from its evil. But can I say it's foolish for you and me to pray for God to do that nationally when we are unwilling to repent of our sin and turn from it? Second Peter 3 verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. And Peter has in view the particular promise that, that Christ will return and bring all things to a conclusion. Or some have questioned and it's been going on for 2000 years now, where's the Lord? Why doesn't he come back? Why doesn't he rescue us? Well, here's the answer. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. It's the reason he gave Nineveh 40 days from the time Jonah first entered the city and began to proclaim the coming destruction. 40 days to repent, and they did, and God relented. And aren't you glad that God has not come in in swift, deserved justice to give all of us what our sin merits? Andrew read a portion of 1 Timothy 2 at the outset of the service, and I want to remind you that our prayers for God's blessing are ultimately tied to his desire, as 1 Timothy 2.4 says, that all people would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We should be praying for peace in this nation, not because we want the good life, the comfort of life. We want the stock market to bounce back, and we want to be able to get our kids in school again. Although those are not bad things, ultimately it's about the salvation of those who are perishing. God is gracious and merciful in ways we cannot fathom, but this story puts it on beautiful display for us. And we may be as confident in our day as Jonah should have been in his day that, and was, in one sense, we'll come to in just a moment, that, that God's desire is, is not only to relent, but beyond that to work in ways of forgiveness and reconciliation and rescue and salvation. Nineveh experiences a great awakening And it's all the result of God's grace. Well, God's not only gracious to Nineveh, but chapter 4 reveals how gracious he is to Jonah. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, i got to tell you, as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I've prayed long and hard that I could see a great awakening. I'm not even asking God to make me the catalyst of it. I just read of some of these great awakenings in church history and such and think to myself, oh, can you imagine what that must have been like? So I'm. I, part of me says, I don't get this. But then I also say, yeah, there is Jonah in me, and there's plenty of self-righteousness within me that does relate to Jonah's here. But Jonah's displeased. That doesn't quite convey how strong an emotional response he has to this. That phrase, it displeased Jonah in a very pedantic translation, would read like this. It was evil to Jonah. You're ascribing evil to God, Jonah? Yeah, in his heart. That's what's underneath this anger. So this is not mild irritation. In Jonah's world, this is a great disaster that's unfolding in Nineveh. His Hebrew nationalism is driving his heart and soul at this moment. It's not the grace of God that he's experienced that is paving the way for his heart to respond. He's burning in anger. And then look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Well, they never re- he never recorded that conversation back in chapter 1. But apparently there were previous prayers and conversations between Jonah and God where Jonah was probably trying to negotiate that initial call. I don't want to go to Assyria. If I go to Assyria and preach this message, here's what's going to happen. So then he goes on from that point and says, That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. And look at this next phrase. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And relenting from disaster. I mean, that's the point where you're like, seriously, what is wrong with this guy? Not only is he a a displeased prophet, as verse one says, but now his words reveal that there's a disconnected theology from the world he's living in. It's not incorrect theology, is it? I mean, look at those descriptions of of God that he puts out there again. All of those are absolutely true. But somehow the realities of those attributes of God have, have morphed into this really skewed and distorted understanding of his place in the world and the place of the Assyrians. We look at those things and, and some of us would say, those are the grand truths of the Bible that cause us to sing praises to God. We just recounted a whole list of similar things as we sang. Those are the great truths that cause us to hum sometimes sweetly to ourselves while we're going about our daily tasks or chores. I mean, your mind settles on these great attributes of God and, and And there's, generally speaking, joy or praise or comfort or encouragement. Jonah's angry. Aren't these the truths that compel us to pray for our nation, for our neighbors, for our friends and family who are apart from Christ? Aren't these the truths that are supposed to motivate us to sacrificial service and risk-taking mission? Usually, but not for Jonah, because his pride is ruling his heart at this moment. His self-interest and self-righteousness is absolutely in control, but I would also say those attributes and truths concerning God are quickly displaced, even in the heart of an eight-year-old who justifies running away from home because he thinks he's more important than he really is and deserves to be treated in a way that he estimates. It's true for teenagers who pout and sulk when they don't get their own way. It's true for adults who manipulate spouses or children to get what they want. You see, all of us have those profound Jonah moments where we, in in essence, say to God, would you let me be in charge? And if you actually take charge and do this thing, it's not going to sit well with me. Jonah believes God should have acted in a different way. And he seems to be happy to let God know it. But aren't you glad that God loves Jonah and us too much to let us continue in this kind of anger? Aren't you glad that God is not threatened by really bad prayers like Jonah prays and like you and I pray? And God goes back to the heart of Look at verse 4. He's going to probe Jonah's heart with a pointed question. He's done this before, hasn't he? There are really significant questions that emerge in the book of Jonah. But here's another one. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? And it appears the way this unfolds that Jonah is giving God the silent treatment. I've been there before, have you? God, I don't want to talk about this. Just leave me alone. Verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's ticked, but apparently he's still holding on some hope that maybe Nineveh's repentance won't last and God will come and just like nuke the place. But that's not what happens, is it? Look at verse 6, because God has not only begun to probe Jonah's heart with a pointed question, he is exposing Jonah's heart through, through his own personal little disaster. Now, I would put that in quotation marks if I were handing you notes that were printed out because from our vantage point and from God's, it's not actually a disaster, but Jonah feels like what he's experiencing is a true disaster. So follow along as I read the next several verses. Verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Remember that word? We've encountered that before. God appointed the storm. God appointed the fish. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Oh, and now Jonah's ready to talk. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This dude needs a spanking, doesn't he? God in his grace has removed the source of Jonah's comfort in order that he might expose the heart in particular, the evil of pride and the evil of his prejudice that caused him to hold the opinions that he does, to pray the prayers that he's praying at this particular moment, and to maintain a rebellious attitude. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And we know exactly where this is going, don't we? That Jonah feels more pity for a plant that provided shady relief from a scorching wind that he feels for the 120,000 people who are exposed to the scorching wrath of God's judgment that's coming. You know, sometimes the loss of our personal comforts and protections are designed by God to expose what's really in our hearts. I can't help but think that he's doing that very thing through this whole season of covid He's just turned our lives upside down and there are many routines that provided a sense of shelter and comfort for us and now we're, we're being stretched and tested and I'm not saying that everything that comes out of you, you know, is sinful and needs to be repented of, but I'll guarantee you that you like I could recall some things in recent months and say, oh Lord God, forgive me because what I said or what I did or even what I thought was rebellion toward you and what God is revealing to Jonah is that his heart is as far from God's heart as Tarshish is from Nineveh. Now let me pause right here and say, isn't it even more glorious that God would use a prophet with a bad attitude to bring about such a powerful awakening in a pagan city like Nineveh? As a little sidebar, that's another reminder that you and I are not called to present the gospel perfectly. We should make every effort to have a clean heart toward God and pure motives in evangelism, but it's not about perfect people presenting a perfect message. It's about a great God going to work in the world. So there's some consolation for those of you who really do have a sincere heart and desire to serve God and you just want to be faithful and and you're saying, is the the problem me? It could be, but unless the Holy Spirit is making your sin really plain and and obvious, don't, don't spend a lot of time there. Just go forward in faith. We go back to this story, and now we come really to the conclusion, because God, who's been probing Jonah's heart in grace and who's been exposing Jonah's heart by grace, now concludes this conversation with a profoundly convicting question. Verse 11, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. A quick correction. First sermon I preached in this little brief series, I I indicated to you that the 120,000 who can't tell left hand from right hand probably has reference to children. I actually think it's just reference to the whole population. It, It could still be that, but just after more reflection and even seeing the direction of God's Uh, of God's conversation with Jonah and considering the context and even some historical data, it seems like it's probably the entire population. And the point may even be stronger and more profound to show the pity in God's heart because these people are so corrupted by their sin that they actually cannot make a morally straight decision. That's his point. And that actually moves God's heart not to anger, but pity. That heartens me. Because realistically, if you take that, that question at face value, should God pity any of us as our sin is truly known to him? And, and if you were answering from just the, the law of God and the justice of God, you would actually say, no, we deserve judgment. We deserve to perish for our sins. We deserve full condemnation. We deserve torment because our sin is, is in the same category of Nineveh's sin, which was in the same category of the sailor's sin, which was in the same category of Jonah's sin. The reality is all of us deserve judgment, not pity. But God's leading us a different direction and revealing His great heart to us, and His pity is not in conflict. It's not in inconsistency with His justice, is it? The answer which is clearly implied in verse 11, is yes, God should have pity for them. But a follow-up question comes immediately. How can God do that? How can a God of justice have pity for those who have absolutely broken His law? And that's where the Scriptures from Genesis forward, even to this point, have been pointing us to the coming Redeemer, the one who would be the substitute sacrifice for sinners like us the messiah as he is revealed in the old testament christ as we know him from new testament terminology jesus whose name means he will save his people from their sins and there's a there's a beautiful statement of christ from the cross that mirrors the same Pity that resides in the heart of God as he speaks to Jonah and he awakens Nineveh to their sins and he rescues those sailors. As Jesus hung on the cross, he cried, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Or to put it in Jonah's terminology, Father, they can't tell their left hand from their right hand. Sin has worked such a comprehensive woe in their souls that even if you gave them the choice at this minute, at this moment, in their own strength and understanding, they won't choose the right way. We must intervene. And aren't you glad that God had pity and has pity to this day? The cross of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of his life is the definitive expression of his compassion for evil and violent people like those at Nineveh, of proud, self-righteous prophets like Jonah, of eight-year-olds and adults who worship at the altar of self-centered idolatry. He is the expression of God's compassion and the hope of our rescue. Now look at verse 11 with me again. You read to that point and... You know, you kind of want to go, What What? is that it? I turn the next page and it says, Micah, And what happened? Truth be told, we don't know. Because even the details of the story, how it played out in Jonah's life, what happened to the king of Nineveh and, and all of his subjects there in the city, that's not actually the great point. The great point of the story that you and I must carry out of this is that God is great in compassion. Your sin is serious, mine is serious, but God has compassion to meet it. You and I should repent of our evil, whatever form it takes. But as we do, God hears and answers. You and I should carry the message of his coming judgment, but also offer the hope of his present judgment forgiveness and salvation to those who will receive it we should go into cities like Nineveh and communities that that we live in and call the people to believe so the point is not to tell us how it all played out the point is to say look at your God there's hope for us right now in this day there's hope for this nation there's hope for your marriage There's hope for your child, there's hope for your mom or your dad, there's hope because God in his grace is greater than we are in our deepest, ugliest sin. Several thoughts that come to my mind when we reach the end and say, what do we do now with Jonah? And I don't mean with him as the prophet, I mean with this book, with God's truth as it's given to us. Some of the big thoughts would, would, would be these. First, don't ever run away from God. For starters, you can't get away from Him, right? More importantly, don't run because He's actually everything you need. Your sin may seem insurmountable at this point, but there's greater grace in God than there is sin in you. Turn to Him, not away from Him. And as you turn to Him... Confess the pride of your heart. Confess the prejudice. Those are two big things that God has brought out uh, through the life of of Jonah. Don't continue to stew in your self-righteous anger. Ask God to take away that anger and give you a heart full of pity. A good question to ask, and I've been asking it in the course of these last several weeks. Lord, are there any individuals or even groups of people that I would be happy to see you just wipe off the planet? If I'm really honest... There are some groups that are so troubling to me that I kind of wish God would get them. But that's where God comes through a story like this and says, is your heart aligned with mine or is your heart more aligned with your political views, your conservative values, your financial framework and worldview?" And that's where I have to be honest as as God would have you to be honest before him and say, "What, what really is driving me? Is it the gospel itself? Is it the character and nature of God? Is it his heart? Or do I have some alternative influence that really is shaping my thoughts and my responses and even my desires? And I think God is calling us to humbly ask him to give us a heart that beats with the same grace and mercy, the same patience and steadfast love, That Jonah has highlighted and rather being angry that he has shown mercy to groups of people or individuals who actually deserve justice but remind ourselves we all deserve that justice and if we've been recipients of this great grace and mercy then why shouldn't they and that actually leads me into just a call again to pray pray for our city if God brought the age to a close today and everybody who lives in this valley alone were brought before the judgment seat of Christ. Think of how many thousands would perish. But think of how powerful this story is in reminding us that God is deeply concerned about great cities like Nineveh and Salt Lake and Portland and New York and Chicago and Miami and Dallas and all around the world. And the last thing I would encourage you to to think through is the privilege and opportunity we have to call out to this current culture and say, turn to Jesus, turn to Jesus. A heart like God's means a heart of pity and compassion, not a heart of anger, not a heart of self-righteousness, not a heart of vindictive punishment, a heart of grace. Let's pray together. Father how thankful we are for your great heart I'm thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in the lives of ordinary people people who struggle in the same same ways we do and we ask that you would take this word and sanctify us with it that we would be convicted of our sins so that we might turn away from it and turn to you the living god that we might be humble and honest And that we would be motivated by the cross of Jesus Christ. How thankful we are for a Savior who cries from that dying place. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. For a God who says, should I not have pity? Over 120,000 who don't have the moral capacity to choose the right. We plead with you, Lord God, to have mercy upon our city. Thousands here today, some who are deeply religious and and very sincere, but lost, blinded by the God of this world. Others who are blinded by their secularism, all ultimately fearful of what this life holds and what awaits them in the unknown future. Oh, Lord God, have mercy upon Salt Lake City. Have mercy upon Utah. Have mercy upon our nation. Have mercy upon this world. And stir our hearts that we may know you as you are. We are thankful for gospel hope. Thankful for those, Lord, who have served and committed themselves so sweetly one to another. Pray for your protection. Not for our comfort or ease but ultimately for the testimony of Christ in this community. Thank you for those guests who have come to be with us today and the blessing they are and the honor it is for us to host them. Would you strengthen each of us as we go from this place to believe what is true about you and to live in light of those great truths. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.